Everyone in life is on a path. That path is set for you at birth, but eventually you come to choose what path you want to travel on. There's the the Christian path and the Catholic path, the Buddhist path, the Muslim path, the atheist path, and so on. Everyone makes a choice as to their worldview, and all these different paths come with their own way of life. Each path also has a destination. The atheist believes there really is no destination, but otherwise the other worldviews believe that their destination is heaven of some sort. They're all after some form of eternal life or salvation. Now, I, I know I've said this many, many times, but it bears repeating that you should know that all people on the planet from all these different paths and worldviews, they all live by faith. Even the atheist lives by faith. How so? Well, it's like all people are walking on their path toward a door, but no one knows what's on the other side, or at least not by ordinary means. There's no physical, scientific, or experimental, experiential knowledge on what's really on the other side of the door of death. We're dealing with metaphysics, not physics, so it's not knowable by ordinary means. The atheist, for example, thinks that nothing comes after death, but he doesn't really know that. It's not like that's some scientific tested truth. He just chooses to believe that. And if we define faith as believing in the unseen, well, like I said, all are living by faith. So the real question is not whether or not to believe, but what to believe. Everyone believes something. Which path is correct? They're all, by definition, mutually exclusive. One must be right. The others, all of them, by definition, must be wrong. So it's a pretty important question. Which one is right? Which is correct? How can you tell? Well, that's a very large subject, which you might call apologetics, and we could spend a lot of time offering a defense for the Christian path and showing the folly of the others. And for now, though, I just want to point out one factor. Whichever is the true path, it should stand out, right? It should, in some clear way, be set apart from the rest. That's something I've also uh, also mentioned quite a few times, but have you ever pondered how all the other worldviews, they all, they all present the same way of salvation? Although they, they look a little different on the outside, they all teach that to make it to the other side, to make it to heaven, whatever they call it, it depends on you. It's up to you and your effort. If you ask a Catholic, salvation comes to those who seek God, who try to do God's will, who partake the sacraments. If you ask a Muslim, salvation comes to those who observe the the five pillars, belief in the one God and his only prophet, Muhammad, pilgrimage, fasting, prayer, and charity. If you ask a Buddhist, salvation comes to those who improve their karma and advance toward enlightenment through compassionate acts, uh, moral conduct, meditation, and the other guidelines prescribed by Buddha's Eightfold Path. And if you ask a Hindu, salvation comes to those who follow the path of meditation, knowledge, good works, and devotion. And so it goes for all worldviews. But I'm sure you notice they're all, you know, they're all pretty much the same. They all boil down to you. They all prescribe a man-centered, works-based path of salvation. Where it's all up to the striving of man to make his own way into heaven. You have to do good things. You have to be a good person to get through the door. They're they're all the same. They all boil down to the same thing. But this is where biblical Christianity is set apart by itself, alone, the only worldview 
that teaches otherwise. Christianity alone recognizes the total inability of man to earn his own salvation and instead offers a solution entirely by grace, apart from human effort to make it to the other side of the door, so to speak. Our deeds aren't good enough. In fact, we're the problem. We're the ones who got ourselves in the mess to begin with because of our deeds. But entrance into heaven is still available for free to all those who would, by grace, pass through the door of Christ by faith. We deserve to be kept out because of our sins. But Jesus paid their price and purchased our place. And all those who live by faith in him might be saved. This is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And none come to the Father but through him. So you must follow Jesus by faith to be saved and receive eternal life as a gift and inheritance by grace. To me, at least, this is supremely compelling. And I trust to you as well. That's probably why you're here. But there's still some troubling news because there are many people, actually, who they, they think they've found the right path and, and it is the right path following Christ. Yet there are some who, who think they're following Jesus, but they still don't make it through that door. They're turned away from the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus himself said there will be many, not a few, many who call him Lord, yet they're turned away. Jesus will declare to them, I, I never knew you. That's meant to give us pause where we say, wait, wait a second. I thought, I thought you know, this is the right path. Salvation, just follow Jesus, believe in Jesus. And here are these people, for example, in Matthew 7, who claim to believe in him. They, they call him Lord, yet they're turned away at the door. And, and so what gives? How are, how are these people rejected? Well, in short, they never knew Jesus and Jesus never knew them. In other words, they didn't really come by faith. They still came by, by ritual, by self, by some other means, just slapped Jesus on the cover, not by faith. Jesus was never really their hope, their confidence. Said they were hoping in themselves. They still placed their confidence in themselves to deliver them. And Jesus, he's like their religious guru, their spiritual figure in their religion. Many have been deceived like this, and many similarly still are deceived. So how do you know if this is you? How do you know if you're really on the right path? I mean, wouldn't you want to know? Jesus himself described it as a narrow path with a narrow gate that leads to life, and there's few who find it. He said that. And again, that's meant to have some shock value because most people operate as if, you know, 99% of the population will make it into heaven. But Jesus said few find it, but many enter the broad gate leading to destruction. So how do you know that you're on the narrow path? Well, in a figurative manner of speaking, there are various signs or checkpoints, if you will, on the right path. Letting you know you're, you're going the right way. You are on the right path. They line the way, and as you pass by them, you can be ensured you are on the true path. If you miss them, however, be warned. You might be one of those who are deceived on the wrong path. You might be going the wrong way. What are these checkpoints? Well, we come to identify some of them 
again in our passage for this morning. And so you can open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 3. Book of Philippians chapter 3. In many of Paul's epistles, he becomes quite autobiographical as he reflects on his own conversion in order to teach us something about salvation. And that's, that's what we got going on here in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 11. We talked about false disciples, those who claim that they follow Jesus, but they don't really know him. And you see, there were some people like that, and they were starting to infiltrate the church back in Paul's day. This one group was known as the Judaizers, and they were leading people down a false path back toward works righteousness. And they slapped Jesus on the cover again, but theirs was still a religion of deeds and rituals, just like all the others. And so Paul first warns us in verse 2, chapter 3, to, to beware, he says three times. Watch out for such people. They will lead you down the wrong path. Instead, you need to stand firm in the true path. Unless the Philippians be deceived, Paul reminds them what the true path looks like using his own past experience. That's because once upon a time, Paul himself was very much on the wrong path. He was leading the charge on that wrong path. The path of works, righteousness, self-righteousness. Paul knows very well what that wrong path looks like, even a religious wrong path. But in coming to Christ, he also knows what the right path looks like. And so from his conversion experience, we find guidance The circumstances of Paul's conversion were unique. But there's only one way of salvation, and he walked that way. The changes that took place in his heart and mind, those are common to all who come to this same salvation. And so we find in in Paul a pattern of salvation. And therefore, it's from his experience that we're deriving these three checkpoints, if you will, on the path of salvation that you too must pass through to be saved. That's what we started getting into in this passage last week, Philippians 3, 4 through 11, these three checkpoints on the path of salvation that you too must pass through to be saved. From Paul's experience, we can gather these these signs, these checkpoints that you're on the right path. And seeing how his experience is normative, they provide helpful guides. They allow us to evaluate ourselves and say, you know, have I, have I passed this way? Have I gone through these checkpoints in coming to your true faith in Christ? If so, be reassured. Be comforted. If not, though, beware. You might be one of those deceived still on the broad path and not knowing it. And wouldn't you want to know? If that, if that just happened to be you and you had no idea, wouldn't you want to know at least? Well, either way, you want, to, you want to heed what Scripture has to say in this little passage. Last time we made it through checkpoint number one, but it bears repeating at least a little bit. Number one, you must reject the flesh. You must reject the flesh. The true path of salvation involves putting no confidence in the flesh. We learned from the previous verses. Rather, Christ alone must be your only hope. We learned last time how this is a play on words where Paul says, putting no confidence in the flesh. 
he used this to describe those false teachers, these Judaizers, because they made the rite of circumcision the defining mark of being in God's people. I mean, if you keep the law of Moses and if you're circumcised, you're in. You're good to go. And so their confidence was in the flesh, literally in their flesh via circumcision. That was their their confidence that they will stand before God approved. Believing in Jesus, that's good, but it's not enough. You need faith plus works, they taught. But the flesh, you see here, in a way, symbolizes human effort. Their confidence was really in themselves, their deeds, their accomplishments. They were trusting in themselves and their own effort to make them right with God. But as we found, that is quite a futile and false confidence because you can't deliver yourself. That's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. That's why Jesus came, because on our own, we have no hope of being justified or being made right with God. I mean, if that were true, if you could just work your way back to God, Jesus died needlessly. If you could just do that yourself by keeping the law or getting circumcised or getting baptized, Jesus didn't have to die. What's the point of him dying on the cross? But Paul came to realize that, yes, Jesus did have to die because on our own we have no hope. The flesh profits nothing, Jesus said. No person can be justified before God on their own by their deeds, by their accomplishments. All we do is fall short. And so to show how off-base these Judaizers were, Paul beats them at their own game by recalling his old boasts in the flesh. When it comes to trusting in your own privileges and accomplishments to justify you before God, like little badges of honor, no one beats Paul. Paul had them all beat hands down when it comes to these, these other confidences. And he recalls his old boasts in the flesh in verses 4 through 6. So just to get you back up to speed, look at verse 4 again, chapter 3. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. We covered these in detail last week. I'm not going to redo that here, but in short, Paul had accumulated all these badges of honor throughout his life, some by birth, some by effort, and he had he had bigger badges and more badges than anyone else. And he was counting on these to save him. These accomplishments would Get him in the door. Get him through that door, he thought. God would, God would see. Paul is so worthy. Look at all he's done. He's so worthy of heaven. And just let him right in. That's what, that's what he taught. That's what all these people think. But all that changed when Paul came to meet Christ. And he came to realize all of his efforts, all of them, all of his badges of honor from circumcision to keeping the law, they all counted for nothing before God. They all amounted to nothing, no credit, not even one credit to get through the door. They, they counted for nothing. 
God has no regard for your so-called religious deeds. In fact, Paul's boasts were keeping him from God because they were preventing him from, from latching onto Christ alone, which is the only means of getting through that door. The only way you can be saved or justified, made right with God, is by faith alone in Christ alone. And his, his deeds were keeping him from that, actually. So when Paul came to realize this in meeting the risen Christ, when the veil was lifted from his eyes, he could finally see the true path of salvation. He understood the first step, the first checkpoint on the path of salvation, if you will, is to reject the flesh. You must first cast down your deeds, your accomplishments, your badges of honor, everything you, you trust in to deliver you. It's all vain and empty. Cast them down. You have to reject the flesh, which is to say self-confidence, self-reliance, self-righteousness. You've seen those Coast Guard sea rescues, right? Someone lost at sea, Coast Guard comes, the helicopter guy you know, drops down and, and pulls the guy up. Well, picture a guy, he's floating in the water. It's a stormy sea. The ship has sunk. But right before it sunk, he was able to save his treasure. He had a briefcase full of these rare gold coins worth tens of millions. The briefcase had no handle, so he's got to hold on to it with both hands. You can just picture him in the water, desperately trying to tread water, keep himself and his treasure afloat. But you know, it's just, it's just dragging him down. Well, the Coast Guard arrives just in time. The guy lowers from the helicopter, reaches out his hand to save the sinking swimmer. He tells him to grab hold, but what must take place first? To be pulled up and saved, the swimmer's going to have to latch onto that Coast Guard guy with all of his might. But he can't do that yet because he's holding on to his treasure with all of his might. So obviously, he's going to have to let it go. It can't come with him. He's going to have to, to cast it down. He's going to have to abandon his treasure to be saved. Now, if this were you, what would you do? It should be a no-brainer. I mean, what, what good is $10 million if you're going to drown? And furthermore, what if I told you the case was filled with fake coins? That they were worth nothing? And then it would be really an easy decision. They're literally nothing but dead weight. They're not treasured at all. They can't give you the life you desire. All they're doing is dragging you down. And I trust you get the picture here. For Christ, he's pictured in a way as, as reaching down, reaching his hand down, extending the offer of salvation. That here, Here's life, everla <clears throat> everlasting. He can pull you up. In fact, he's your only hope of not sinking. And all you must do is, is grab onto him by faith and cling to Christ as the rock, your only confidence. But that necessitates letting go of what you're currently holding on to, namely trust in yourself, your deeds, your accomplishments, your goodness, your righteousness. Even your so-called religious deeds, they're nothing but dead weight before God. They don't, they don't pull you up. They just drag you down. They can't save you. You can't be righteous enough. Like Jesus himself said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must first deny himself and then follow me. 
You can't come if your hands are full. First, you must deny self, meaning trusting in yourself. Have you done this? It, it should be a no-brainer. But countless people don't, such as the deceitfulness of the flesh. Countless people are out there drowning, rejecting the offer of Christ, convinced they can, they can save themselves. Well, at the very least, the Apostle Paul realized the truth that all of his old boasts were nothing. They were just weighing him down. And once he understood the free offer of Christ's righteousness, that all he needed was offered in Christ for free, well, it was an easy decision. He he cast them all down. He abandoned all of his old boasts in the flesh. And he passed through that first checkpoint of rejecting the flesh. And so too must you. You must reject the flesh. And this leads us to the, the second checkpoint, number two. You must gain Christ. Not, not rocket science here, but you must gain Christ. And now look at verses 7 and 8, are the passage we'll really be focusing on here. Verse 7 in Philippians 3. He says after, But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Obviously, it's not enough to cast down your self-righteousness. You still need to be righteous, and that's why you need to gain Christ. What does that really mean, though? And what's so special about Jesus? Why is he the only ticket to the door of heaven, so to speak? Well, Jesus is the only one that can meet your needs. And what do we need? Salvation. All our sinners all have fallen short of God and his glory and his standard, which is perfect righteousness. Now, I know sin doesn't seem like that big a deal to people these days. Recent survey just came out in the UK showing their their changing morality. I would say declining morality, and we're not far behind. Now, 64% believe same-sex relationships are not wrong at all. 75% believe sex before marriage is not wrong at all. And 70% believe abortion is not wrong at all. Those are stunning majorities. But right and wrong is not defined by society. They're defined by the Creator. And in contrast to God, who is the Creator, perfect in holiness and righteousness, Sin is a big deal. Each sin is an infinite offense before his majesty. And our sins have accumulated a debt before God that we cannot pay. You have no hope of paying back your sin debt to God. We're all unrighteous. We can't even produce any credit toward paying that debt down because we're defiled in sin. And so therefore, we're not worthy to stand in God's presence. We are worthy to be kept out forever. But Jesus can change all that. That, That's why he came. That's why he had to die on that cross. Because he was paying our sin debt for us. And thereafter, giving us the gift 
of righteousness. His own perfect righteousness credited to our account. That we might be redeemed. That we might be worthy of entering into God's presence. We deserve eternal death and separation from God. But in love and mercy and grace and compassion, Jesus died and rose to give us what we don't deserve. Eternal life and reconciliation with God. So what does Jesus offer as he reaches down his hand? He's the bread of life. All who go to him will not be hungry. He's the living water. All who go to him will not thirst again. He can both redeem your soul and satisfy your soul. He's the real treasure. But how do you receive what he offers, this forgiveness of sins, this eternal life? Well, the answer is, you know, by faith, through him and in him, God grants us forgiveness and redemption by his grace. But realize these gifts, they come by virtue of Christ. Because look, we're, we're not righteous. We need to receive it as a gift. And it comes in Christ. Jesus is the righteous one. He earned our redemption. He purchased our forgiveness. And so it's only in Christ, by virtue of our union with him, that we receive all of his saving benefits. You know, this concept, union with Christ. You, you may never think about it. But it's actually the the number one way the New Testament describes Christians, those who are united to Christ by faith. A pencil by itself is easily broken. Back in high school, I remember just taking pencils. We still use pencils back then. I guess it's probably computers today. But just you can one one hand, it's kind of fun, just kind of snap a pencil in your hand, just one hand. But if you took that pencil and you completely bound it to a steel bar, just just super bound it to a steel bar. You could never break it. It would essentially become as strong as that steel bar, even though it's still just a pencil. And we likewise, on our own, we're weak, we're fail, or frail, rather, and fallen. But when we're bound to Christ, we inherit his righteousness. His spiritual strength, so to speak, becomes ours, and by which we can be saved. And so the New Testament says, for example, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Or Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why we say here in this text, like Paul says, you have to gain Christ. You have to gain him, a person. Paul expresses salvation here as gaining Christ, which is to say being united to him by faith. And like Paul, you must come to see Christ's value. Did you notice in the passage, Paul is making a value comparison. Look again at verse 7. He says, whatever things were gain to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ, and more than that, I count all things to be lost, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and, and count them but rubbish, 
that I may gain Christ. Do you notice the threefold repetition of the word count? It means to reckon, to regard, to esteem. It describes a change in his thinking. And that, that change is part of salvation. Your mind changes. Your values change. Your worldview changes. As God lifts the veil from your eyes, you see things clearly. You realize you've been deceived this whole time and the truth sets you free. Listen to Jeremiah 2.13. God convicts the people and he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Just think, like, who would ever do that? Who would ever exchange a fountain of never-ending living water for like a water tank that's cracked and broken. It can't hold any water. It's empty. Who, who would make that trade? Well, only, only a fool or a blind person. And hence the world being spiritually blind, they, they disregard Jesus. They, they make that trade. He might be the living water, but they'll, they'll rather trust in themselves. But when the light of God's grace shines on you, then you come to see Jesus for who he really is, you immediately see his surpassing value. That word in verse 8, surpassing value, his supreme worth, his his super value, it's beyond compare. You just imagine you're feeling sick with the flu. So you go, maybe you buy some Theraflu, just going to ride it out. And someone comes up to you and says, how much would you pay right now for, for this cure to the Ebola virus? You would probably think this person is crazy, like just really crazy. I mean, we're, we're in America. We, there's no Ebola here. You haven't traveled to Africa anytime soon, or, re, or la, recently rather. You just have the flu. That's it. There's, you don't have a, the Ebola virus, so you wouldn't pay anything. This person is just crazy. But what if the person who came up to you was your doctor, who had, you had just visited, and he had showed you some blood work and some tests he ran? explaining how you actually you had come into contact with someone who did contract Ebola, and you have it. You actually do have the Ebola virus. He proves it to you with, with these tests. And your flu symptoms, they're just, that's the early onset of the virus. Now, how much would you pay for the cure? Because you know otherwise you're dead. Or what if it was your child who had it? How much would you pay then? You'd pay anything. You'd pay everything. In that moment, when you're finally convinced that you're sick and dying, your, your Theraflu becomes completely worthless. It can do nothing to treat your actual condition. Just, just throw it out. Don't even bother with it. Instead, in that moment, you come to see the surpassing value of that little cure. It's now worth everything. It, it's your only chance of, of be, being saved. It's worth all that you have. And again, I trust you see the connection. All people are sick with sin. It's a fatal condition. But sin is deceptive, and people are blinded and deceived into thinking they're not that bad. And so they trust in their own goodness to save them. They they self-medicate, so to speak. In reality, though, it's only a matter of time before they perish forever, and their own works, their own religion, their own goodness, they can't actually treat their real condition. However, once a person comes to realize, like the Apostle Paul did, that, that they're 
They're sick. They're dying with the stain of sin. That their own efforts can't save them. It's of no avail. But that that Christ, the cure, he's available. Well, then they they finally see the surpassing value of, of Christ. And in an instant, Christ becomes worth everything. Gaining him is now worth any price. Because he's the only one who can provide you eternal life. Do you remember these two parables of the kingdom? Parables of salvation. I'll read Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you get the connection? That that merchant got it. He saw that the surpassing value of, of that one pearl, and he knew he just had to have it. And the only way he could get it was by losing everything else. Now this is a picture of how you must come to Christ, to the kingdom and of his surpassing value. And Christ offers you life. It's free. It's free. It's by grace. But it costs you everything at the same time. For to gain it, you have to come empty, which means you have to give up everything you hold on to for salvation. That's the cost. All that you used to, to hope in, to trust in, to count in, to deliver you must be shed, given up, and you come to Christ and Christ alone. Christ must be your sole Lord and Savior. And in stark contrast to these two parables, I'm sure you also remember the story of the rich young ruler. One day this young man approaches Jesus, and he happens to be rich and a ruler. So we call him the, the rich young ruler. And he asks Jesus, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus reads him like a book, though, and sees this guy is just trusting in his self-righteousness. So he confronts him with the law. Jesus tells him, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, this should have prompted a response from the young man saying, well, wait, wait a second. That's not even possible. Nobody can keep all the commandments. That's impossible. And that would have been the right answer, for the law is an impossible standard. But no, that's not what he says. You remember his response. He basically says, oh, done that. Check. I've, I've kept all the commandments since my youth. Tell me what else do I have to do? What, what's next? That's how he responds. And we know, we too, hopefully, can see his deception. The law cannot be kept. We're, we fall short. We're sinners. No one can keep all of God's commandments, not even a day. The man is still deceived in his self-righteousness. So Jesus gives him another test meant to expose his sin, his violation of the law, hoping that this would finally humble him. And Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions. Give them to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. See, Jesus knew this man was just trusting in himself and his money. He may have kept much of the law externally, But he was no true worshiper. And clearly he loved his money more than God, more than his neighbor. Gold 
had captured his heart. His Lord and Savior was gold, so to speak, but his was a fool's gold. And so what would he do? Would he he give up his grip on possessions and property and and his self-righteousness to gain Christ, who's worth it, who's worth way more? Well, no, it says that when this young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. He couldn't give it up. In reality, his property owned him. Some people, they just won't make the trade. They'll hold on to their sinking treasure until the very end. And again, this is the deceitfulness of sin. But I hope this morning you're gaining a clearer vision of Christ. He's the only treasure. He is the pearl of great price. The only one who can save you. And you have to see his surpassing value and reject the flesh and gain him. You must gain Christ. And the last thing that we have to do then is, is simply to clarify, how do you do that then? How, how, do you, how do you really gain Christ? What does that mean? And again, we said before it's by faith. You gain Christ by faith. But even that needs clarification because we live in a day where many people confuse faith with just another ritual. It's become a new ritual. Many people confuse saving faith with external rituals like Walking down an aisle, signing a card, praying a prayer, raising a hand, asking Jesus into your heart, getting baptized. And don't get me wrong, your conversion may have been associated with, with some or some of these or all of these. But these rituals don't save you. And I want you to see the distinction. The problem is when people come to rely on these past rituals as the present basis of their salvation. In other words, if you were to ask them, hey, how do you know you're saved like right now? How do you know if you were to die like right now you would go to heaven? And they point to some past ritual. Like, well, oh, you know, I, I heard this great sermon 10 years ago and I walked down an aisle and asked Jesus into my heart. Or, you know, I came forward during an altar call at high school camp and I got baptized right then and there. These things aren't bad. The problem is, by their answer, they're still relying on this past ritual, this past experience to save them. I'm not trying to invalidate such experiences at all, but the point is, the point I'm making is true saving faith, it's not past tense. And if your faith is entirely past tense, you may have a problem. Because faith is not a one-time event. It's not something that just purely happened to you in the past. It's living and active. It's ongoing and present. How do you know you're saved? Because you're believing in Christ to save you right now, presently. You're holding on to him and trusting him to deliver you right now, still. Starting in the past, of course, but continuing till this very day. Notice in the passage how Paul said that he counted all things as loss. But he also said twice, I count all things as loss. Present tense. After all these years, Paul himself was still presently counting everything as loss that he might gain Christ. He wasn't merely relying on his conversion experience. Talk about a conversion experience. And like it was real, that's when his faith started. But his was a present, living, and active faith. Abiding in Christ continually to save him. 
And so it must go with all true faith. This is part of knowing Jesus. Notice also the parallel in these verses between gaining Jesus and knowing Jesus. This is describing a, a present, living, and active relationship with Christ. And this, this relationship, it's not, it's not past tense, is it? Is your relationship with Christ past tense? No, your faith, your relationship must be present and ongoing. Some people are content with a past tense knowledge of Christ. And they've learned some facts in the past about Jesus. Like, yeah, he died on the cross. He rose again for my sins. And Okay, I confess that back in high school camp. But now they live and Jesus, he's essentially absent from their lives. They've, they've got no real relationship. How can you tell? Well, they don't talk to him in prayer. They don't hear from him through his word. They don't walk with him. They don't obey him. They don't seek him. They don't worship him. They don't sing songs to him. And they don't do anything. Christ is just absent from their lives. doesn't sound like much of a relationship because it's not. And it stems from a false faith, a faith that has been confused with just a, a Christianese ritual. But to know Jesus is to love Jesus, is to live for Jesus, is to follow Jesus. It's a relationship that, by definition, you lose all to gain him. It, it radically changes your life. It completely reorients your life and takes over your life. Don't forget that when you gain Jesus, you not only gain a Savior, you also gain a Lord. And faith in that Lord comes with living as he says. Those whose eyes are still blinded, they always view following Jesus as a burden. Like, I have to give up so much stuff to just be a Christian. Can't do this, can't do that, have to give up this, have to give up that, just to what, to gain Jesus. That doesn't sound like a good trade to them. Like the rich young ruler, they don't want to give up all the fun of life just to be a Christian. It's so boring. But to those whose eyes have been opened to the deceitfulness of sin, and you get the burden of sin, and you understand what Jesus meant when he said, Matthew 11, 28-30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And following Jesus, really, there, there's no burden at all. What can we boast that we, we give, we've given up so much for Jesus? We sacrificed so much for Jesus. In reality, we exchanged trash for treasure. That's all we really did. All we did was receive, receive God's grace through which we came to know Christ. And this is why we, we trust in him alone and boast in him alone. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. But verse 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. It's a clear picture of salvation. It's not us, our strength, our goodness, our righteousness, just Christ and Christ alone. And so make sure you've passed this way in your faith. Make sure you're on the narrow road that leads to life, that you've gone through these checkpoints. First, you've rejected the flesh. You, you've cast down your, your self-righteousness, your self-reliance. You, you have nothing. You confess in humility 
You deserve judgment. You have nothing to bring. But coming empty, squeezing through the first checkpoint, you come to the second where Christ is there waiting and you gain him by faith. Be united to him by a true faith, a past, present, and future faith and be saved. And make Christ your only hope, confidence, and boast. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, says the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are our boast and hope this morning. We confess your name and your worth and our own unworth because of our sin. We have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Like sheep, we've wandered from you, the good shepherd, and and we deserve to be cast out. We've fallen short of your standard, Lord, of perfect righteousness. But by your grace, the veil was lifted from our eyes that we might see. Salvation is here. It's free. It's available. And by your grace, Lord, you made it so. You provided a way in your son Christ that all can be saved if they would first repent of their sins and their self-righteousness, empty themselves and come to Christ and him alone, trusting in him for salvation. I pray often, and I still will, Lord, if any are here who don't know that, who, who haven't done that, convict their hearts right now that you would show them they've been on the wrong way. If they've been deceived, open their eyes that they might know and turn and be changed, be truly born again through a, a true faith in Christ that they would be radically reoriented and gain a Savior and gain a Lord and live accordingly. And for us who have, Lord, we, we just worship you now. We praise you as we remember Christ, the one who gave up so much for us. And what do we really give up, Lord? We give up sin. We give up rebellion. And we gain treasure. We gain Christ. He is the treasure. May we remember this and worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.